As you take your seat, you can turn with me in your copy of the Word of God to Romans chapter 12. We've been in a series of messages for almost the whole year now in Paul's letter to the Romans, and we find ourselves in chapter 12 this morning in verses 3 through 8. I remember in verses 1 and 2, the last time we were together, Paul focused on our relationship to God and talking about presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice. And that is God's fundamental requirement for every believer, to present ourselves holistically to him first and foremost, to have our minds renewed by his word and that we do not conform ourselves to the world. Only as a living sacrifice can we be what God wants us to be and do what God wants us to do, and thereby, as we learned last time, prove the will of God, discover what that will is for our lives, that which is good and pleasing and perfect. Well, in today's passage, you'll notice Paul adds the marvelous truth that although Christ sends forth his servants with a common commission to serve him, he equips them for that responsibility with a great diversity of gifts. His divine plan for believers is unity in message and commitment to diversity in service. The primary purpose of these verses is to make clear that although we must enter the place of usefulness for Christ with the same total self-sacrifice, we are equipped to fulfill that usefulness in unique ways with uniquely distinct gifts. See, the purpose of our offering ourselves to God as living sacrifices is not mystical or monastic, but eminently practical. The Lord wants us to be engaged in service inside of the local branch of the body of Christ, his church. And so devotion to the Lord and active, faithful ministry for him are inseparable. Let me say that again. Devotion to the Lord and active, faithful service or ministry for him are inseparable. You really can't have one without the other. Now, unfortunately... The Church of Christ has always had members who claim closeness and devotion to the Lord, but whose lives exhibit no service on his behalf. They do not engage in good works inside of the body of Christ. On the other hand, it's always had those who are busily active in the church's work, but who exhibit little personal depth of devotion to the Lord and his church. You see, either way is unacceptable. Either model is imbalanced. These lifestyles hinder Christ's work because they don't promote spiritual maturity and the evangelism of the lost. Plain and simple. And so Paul, after telling us about our relationship to God, is now going to focus, and you'll see this in the entire uh, section of the chapter, he's going to focus on ourselves. He wants us to see our relationship to ourselves, and then subsequently, the next time we're in this book, our relationship to our fellow Christians, and then finally in the chapter, our relationship to the world. That's what Paul is dealing with here. 
And so today, he's going to give some very personal words to all of us as Christians in terms of the way that we conduct ourselves in the body of Christ, particularly our service to him and the exercise of our spiritual gifts. I want you to notice three things this morning. Number one, a challenge. Paul gives us a challenge to practice a sound self-analysis. That's in verse 3. And then secondly, a challenge to acknowledge unity and diversity. And we see that in verses 4 and 5. And then thirdly, a challenge to discern and practice spiritual gifts. What are the spiritual gifts that God has given me to exercise in the body of Christ? So with an outline of the message, join me in prayer now. Let's ask God to bless our time of study together. Heavenly Father, I pray now that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart might be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Father, we wish to see Jesus and him only. We pray, Lord, that this message would be empowered by your spirit. It would not simply be mind-informing, but it would be heart-changing in all of us. Lord, do all of your holy will. We'll give you the praise and glory and honor for what you will do. And we make our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. First of all, a challenge to practice a sound self-analysis. And we see this in verse 3. Paul begins with a call to humility. And you'll notice it's a humility based on God's grace. For through the grace given to me, I say to every man among you not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think. The Christian life begins and ends with God's grace. And everything we do in the middle, from the time of our conversion to the time of our death, all of it rests on the grace of God. He calls us to do that which he enables us to do and empowers us to do in the body of Christ. And regardless of the mighty way that the Lord used the Apostle Paul, he always saw himself as a lowly sinner. Indeed, in one place in the pastoral epistles, he saw himself as the chief of sinners, saved by the grace of God. He made this humility clear to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. He said to them, Who regards you as superior? What do you have that you did not receive? But if you receive it, why do you boast as if it were not a gift? Paul is saying that everything you have as a Christian is a gift from God, and you exist by His grace. And therefore, it ought to be pleasurable for you to serve in the body of Christ, to find that place of service where God has uniquely gifted you to do something on His behalf. Now, we have a tendency to compare ourselves with others in the body of Christ. That was one of the major problems in the church in Corinth. Christians have a tendency to envy the experience and the blessings we see in others. <clears throat> Those who were converted at an early age and raised in a covenant home often look over the fence and say, I wish I had that uh, drug and alcohol testimony. I wish I came to Christ later. I wish I was, uh, had that testimony that somebody in the military might have on their deathbed, you know, to, and then they were miraculously recovered to share Christ. And there are others who were converted at a later age, and they long for that experience where they might have been raised in a Christian home, in a covenant home. But the bottom line is, the psalmist makes it clear, the Lord knows all of our days. They were ordained for us before one of them came into being. 
Therefore, we are not to look at the experience or the blessings of another Christian and compare ourselves with that, because that will make us insecure. And often we clothe our insecurities with haughtiness and pride and arrogance. Paul instructs us to be sober-minded and to have sound judgment of ourselves, to think with a sound mind. Here we go back to verses 1 and 2 again. Paul says, don't be like the world, but be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Have a sound mind. And that means sound judgment about yourself. A sound judgment of ourselves remind us that we are children of God, bought by the blood of Christ and treasured by the Lord, regardless of our background, regardless of our talents and abilities. We are not to overvalue our abilities and gifts or worth but to make an accurate estimate of ourselves. Indeed, Paul says in another place in Galatians 6, 3, if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. And he goes on to say, think soberly and have sound judgment as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. We each have a measure of faith. And No two of us are exactly alike in the amount of faith that we have and the various ways that we express it. I believe that is part of the parable of the talents that we read this morning. One man has five talents, one is given two, and another one. And the issue is not how many talents they have. The issue is their faithfulness to the Lord to use those talents in building the kingdom. Some of us have greater faith than others, and that's okay. Certainly, we all want to grow in our faith, but that doesn't mean that we're going to be carbon copies of each other. There are some people that have great faith to share their faith with their neighbor. There are others that have greater faith to go overseas and to respond to the call of God to do something that most people wouldn't do. Therefore, we're not to think too highly and not to think too lowly of ourselves. We are to be sure and secure in our relationship to the Lord Jesus. Secure enough to love others as Christ has loved us. I love the words of the Apostle Peter in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5. He admonishes the elders in the church and he says, Clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Brothers and sisters, it ought to be a privilege to share and to serve in the body of Christ. And yet too often we beg and we plead for people to serve in various places. And those positions too often go unfilled. And there are many, many churches where the 20%, 90% rule is true. 20% of the people are doing 90% of the work. And a church just can't function in a God-honoring way when that sort of phenomenon is taking place. So we all need to begin by humbling ourselves and seeing and being real about our limitations, being realistic about what we can do and what we cannot do, and taking that before the Lord and looking for those opportunities to serve. But it always begins with a humble heart, a thankful heart, I'm thankful that the Lord saved me. And he didn't save me to sit in church and listen to sermons and just sour. He saved me in order 
to serve him. Now, secondly, a challenge to acknowledge the unity in diversity. Look at verses 4 and 5 with me. Paul's challenge, he challenges us to think about our anatomy when we think about the body of Christ, that is, Christ's church. In verse 4, our physical bodies have many members, that is, eyes, ears, nose, hands, fingers, feet, toes, but all members do not have the same function. These members have a variety of functions that differ from one another. I was watching a documentary the other day about a man who lost his thumb. You think, well, that's not that big of a deal. Oh, yes, it is. <laughs> oh, yes, it is. And he started talking about all the different things that he couldn't do anymore because his thumb was gone. Even the smallest members of our body have an important function. And he goes on in verse 5 to apply that. He applies the analogy of our physical body with many members to the church, the body of Christ on earth. And he says, as the many members make up our one physical body, so also we as many members make up the one body of Christ. And we must grasp and appreciate the fact that we are individually members of one another. Paul is emphasizing the principle of unity among diversity in the body of Christ. Each individual member of Christ's church is special and gifted in a unique way. Every believer has at least one spiritual gift. But we also have weaknesses as well as strengths. And we're not to spend our time trying to copy the gifts and the talents and the level of faith that others have that we may not have. Once again, this takes us back to sound judgment about ourselves, being realistic. We can't do everything, but we can do some things. And every Christian has at least one spiritual gift to be discovered and to be practiced. And we'll function better in the body of Christ with a humble and realistic perception of ourselves. That is, I look at myself and I see strengths, but I also see weaknesses. And some of those weaknesses need to be challenged. But nevertheless, I have a realistic view of myself. I read a story the other day. Let me read it to you. Once upon a time, the animals of the earth decided they should do something meaningful to meet the world's problems. So they organized a school. They adopted an activity curriculum of running, climbing, swimming, and flying. To make it easier to administer the curriculum, all the animals took on all the subjects. The duck was excellent in swimming. In fact, he was better than his instructor. But he made only passing grades in flying and was very poor in running. Since he was slow in running, he had to drop swimming and stay after school to practice running. This caused his webbed feet to be badly worn so that he became only an average swimmer. But average was quite acceptable, so nobody worried about that except the duck. <laughs> the rabbit started at the top of his class in running, but developed a nervous twitch in his leg muscles because of so much makeup work in swimming. The squirrel was excellent in climbing, but he encountered constant frustration in flying class because his teacher made him start from the ground up instead of from the treetop down. He developed charley horses from overexertion, and so only got a C in climbing and a D in running. The eagle was a problem child and was severely disciplined for being a nonconformist. In climbing classes, he beat all the others to the top of the tree 
but he insisted on using his own way to get there. See, the point of the story is obvious. Like the animals, every person has his own special but limited set of capabilities. And trying to operate outside of those capabilities produces frustration, discouragement, guilt, mediocrity, and ultimately defeat. And we fulfill our calling when we function according to God's sovereign design for us. How do we discover that? Well, we pray and we read the scriptures, but that's where we need the body of Christ to help us at that point, to discover what our gifts are. And that is the third point, a challenge to discern and practice our spiritual gifts. Paul says, first, analyze yourself with humility. Next, recognize you're not a carbon copy of somebody else. You've got to acknowledge unity in diversity. And then thirdly, a challenge to discern and to practice our spiritual gifts. Now, Paul has already pointed out the various levels of faith given to believers, and he mentions various gifts, gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Now, once again, not everyone is gifted in the same way. We may have gifts that are similar to one another, but practice similar gifts in a variety of settings. For example, someone may have the gift to teach. Let's say three different people are teachers, but they teach in different venues. One is great at teaching a Sunday school class. Another may teach a college or a seminary class. Another may teach in a church like a pastor or perhaps an elder teaching or a deacon teaching an adult Sunday school. Further, God gives grace to some among us uh, to serve with large groups, and he equips others to uh, deal well with smaller, more intimate groups. We saw that in the story of uh, Jethro and Moses. Moses couldn't get it all done, and Jethro gave him uh, the principle of uh, spreading the floor and letting others engage in the work. And you'll notice there were some that had thousands and hundreds and tens. They were overseeing various size groups. And I'm sure a lot went into that in terms of the selection of those individuals to do what they were doing. God gives grace to some to serve in their local church while he gives grace to others to leave and serve elsewhere, like overseas. Let's look at some of these gifts. Paul mentions seven of them. First of all, the gift of prophecy. Now, some believe this was a special revelatory gift that belonged only to the apostles and, like the sign gifts, ceased after those men died. And while it certainly had a revelatory aspect in both the Old Testament and in the apostolic period, it was not limited to revelation. It was exercised when there was a public proclamation of divine truth, old or new. The very word, prophetia, has the literal meaning of speaking forth. Let me put it this way. Under the Old Testament, and even in the apostolic period, before the sacred writings, the scriptures were complete, people would foretell the future. Prophets foretold the future, like Jeremiah and Isaiah. But since we have the completed work of sacred scripture, all the word of God that we need, now prophecy in the church meaning not foretelling the future, but forthtelling the word of God. That is proclaiming God's word. And obviously we do that in Christian circles. Pastors do that. Teachers do that. But it's not limited there. You proclaim the word of God when you share your faith. 
with a fellow worker or somebody at school. You might have the gift of prophecy where you can take the Word of God and proclaim it clearly and adequately so others understand and they're able to connect the dots and see what it means to have faith in Christ. Well, the second gift is service. And service is a general term for ministry. The word translates a straightforward gift that is broad in application. It seems to carry a meaning similar to that of the gift of helps that Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians 12. And this gift certainly applies beyond the office of deacon. In fact, the very word for service is diakonoi, which we get our word deacon from. But it's not just for deacons. It is the idea in Paul's challenge to the Ephesian elders, help the weak, in Acts chapter 20, verse 35. The gift of service is manifested in every sort of practical help that Christians can give one another in Jesus' name. When you see a need and you see a Christian struggling, if you have the means and the time to help them, then do it. You're practicing the gift of service. The third gift is teaching. Again, the meaning is simple and straightforward. It refers to an act of teaching and can refer to what is taught as well as the act of teaching it. And both of those meanings are appropriate to this gift. The Christian who teaches is divinely gifted with a special ability to interpret the Word of God and present God's truth understandably to someone else. The primary difference between teaching and prophesying is not in content, but in the distinction between the ability to proclaim and the ability to give systematic and regular instruction in God's words. That's why the sermon is always a monologue. But when you go to a Sunday school class, you're unable to ask questions, and you're able to thrash it out more, unlike in a message. And the gift of teaching could apply to, again, a teacher in seminary or a Christian college, Sunday school, elementary children, youth, God, wherever God's truth is taught. And the earliest church was characterized by regular teaching. Acts 2, 42 says that they continued in the apostles' teaching. The Great Commission includes the command, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe all that I command you. Matthew 28. We don't just preach. Preaching is important. But teaching is the time where we can apply those truths and ask those questions and get more to the nitty-gritty of what the Bible has to say. Paul's spiritual gift included features of both preaching and teaching. The fourth gift is exhortation. And to encourage others is to do it both positively and negatively. Too often I think we think of this uh, term as something that's positive only. It is the ministry of exhortation of which the writer of Hebrews speaks as he admonishes believers in Hebrews 10, saying, quote, Consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day draw near. What are some examples of this? Well, Jethro and Moses is a good example of this. Jethro showed up. He said, what you're doing is not good. <laughs> This is not good. You're going to wear out and so are all the people standing in line to listen to what you have to say. You're going to have to decentralize this to some degree. And so he encouraged Moses firmly to take a different position. Aquila and Priscilla did this with Apollos. You remember the Alexandrian who was very, very eloquent in 
preaching and teaching, but they realized that he was only acquainted with the baptism of John the Baptist. And so they took him aside privately, and they instructed him more accurately in the way. That's what encouragement is. I think of Barnabas. The very name is the son of encouragement. And the handling of John Mark after his defection. Remember, John Mark is the one who deserted on one of the missionary journeys. And yet, this good man Barnabas, in opposition to the Apostle Paul, said he needs to be reclaimed. He needs to be given a second chance. And Paul said no in one place in Acts. They got in such a, a tight argument that they parted company. And yet later on, Paul wrote in one of the pastoral epistles, Bring John Mark with you, for he is useful to me for service. If it hadn't been for Barnabas, giving him a second chance, another opportunity, who knows what would have happened. I think of Paul's handling of Peter in Galatians 2. Paul was basically not a part of the twelve, and yet he stood up to Peter whenever the Gentiles were there, and Peter began to withdraw Whenever some Jews visited, and Paul says, wait a minute, that's not consistent with the gospel. And so he encouraged him, in a firm way, back to dead center. I think exhortation is needed in the body of Christ, probably more than many other gifts. We need to be involved in each other's lives. Sometimes it's purely positive. Sometimes it's negative. Sometimes it's both. But we try to move each other in the right direction as best we can. The fifth gift is giving, sharing and imparting that which is one's own. When asked by the multitudes what they should do to bring forth fruits in keeping with repentance, John the Baptist replied, let the man who has two tunics share with the one who only has one. And let him who has food do likewise. In his letter to the Ephesians, Paul makes clear that whether or not a believer has the gift of giving, he is to have a spirit of generosity that characterizes the gift. Every Christian should, as Paul said in Ephesians 4.28, labor performing with his own hands what is good in order that he may have something to share with him who has no need. I was reading a, a little while back about a Christian family who has part of their budget, part of their budget, along with the utilities, car payment and all this other stuff, they would have a separate line item about monies to be stored away in order to give to somebody that might have a need. Like our deacons fund and the ways that it helps so many. That's the gift of giving. Having the resources and the generous heart. Sometimes God uses various individuals to subsidize his work. And ministry costs money. There's no two ways about it. But God uses those who have means, and even those who don't. I think about Paul's words about the Macedonian Christians, and they said, out of their poverty, they gave a wealth of liberality. They didn't have a lot of means, but they gave. They gave themselves out of their poverty. Now, that's a spiritual principle. Too often we say, I don't have enough money to give. I can't pay all my bills if I give. If you seek to obey God and trust Him, giving your tithes and offerings, watch what He'll do, as He said in Malachi. I'll open the doors of heaven and pour out a blessing on you so big you won't know what to do with it. But you've got to exercise faith first and not just look at it in a man-centered perspective. The sixth gift is leading. 
Leads is from the Greek word which has the basic meaning of standing before others, and hence the idea of leadership. In the New Testament, it's never used for governmental rulers, but the headship of families and in the church. A man ought to lead his family. God's very clear about that. And God has made it clear in the pastorals and other places that men ought to lead in the church. doesn't mean that women can't. It just means that that's God's blueprint. And that's why we want to fulfill that. That's why we have ruling elders. That's why we have deacons. Men who are set aside to serve and to engage other men and women to serve in the body of Christ. Administrators, which means to guide. It's like a pilot or a helmsman, the person who steers or leads a ship. I don't have anything to do with our finances, but I thank God that we have an administrator over our monies. And I would never try to usurp that or tell that individual what to do. I don't have a clue as to what to do with that. I'll follow the lead at that point. And I thank God to oversee it. But I'll follow that lead. All of us may, in some form or fashion, exercise that gift, leading. And the person who steers or leads the ship is the one who knows where they're going. The, the seventh one is showing mercy. That's the seventh and the last one in this category mentioned here. And uh, the word is a beautiful word, Elio carries the joint idea of actively demonstrating sympathy for someone else and of having the necessary resources to comfort and strengthen that person successfully. The gifted Christian who shows mercy in divinely endowed with special sensitivity to suffering and sorrow, with the ability to notice misery and distress that may go unnoticed by others, and with a deep desire to help alleviate such Afflictions. The believer who shows mercy may exercise his gift in hospital visitation, for instance, or jail ministry, or in service to the homeless, the poor, the handicapped, the suffering, and the sorrowing. It takes a special person to have the gift of showing mercy. And it's a beautiful gift. The gift is closely related to that of exhortation. And it is not uncommon for believers to have a measure of both. Part of the spiritual gifts taught here and in 1 Corinthians 12 is the word variety, variety, variety. There are a variety of gifts with a variety of effects, but all because of the same Spirit. And so let me give you a couple of takeaways as we wrap up the sermon this morning. Number one, don't focus on identifying your gifts. Don't focus on that. Focus on the needs to be met. A believer with a renewed mind and a devoted life will engage in service regardless of his or her gifts. So just look for the need. Look for the need. Don't examine yourself so much that you overdo it. And you say, this is my gift when you may be wrong. And you don't engage in service. A second thing that's closely akin to that, be willing to take risks and even fail. Be willing to take risks and even fail. Say, I don't know. I don't know if I've ever taught youth. I don't know if I'd be good. I don't know if I've ever taught children. And too often we don't even take a step because we're terrified of failure. Listen, God had a whole ministry of failure for the Israelites. And he wrote them over and over again. And if you're too afraid to take a risk, that translates into a form of arrogance. 
Fear of failure can be hiding behind arrogance. What is that arrogance? It's the attitude of saying, I've got to get it just perfect, or I'm not going to do it. I've got to succeed, or I'm not going to engage in it. I had a church planner, a prospective church planner in Louisiana one time, call me. And we were talking to him about coming and planning a church in that section of southeast Louisiana. And he said, what is the success quotient of this? What is the success quotient of this? I said, I haven't got the foggiest idea, but I know you're not our man now. <laughs> I didn't say that to him, but <laughs> I concluded that later on and realized, you're not afraid to risk. You're not afraid to fail. You're not afraid to engage in something, even if it doesn't turn out. Listen, if you engage in something and it doesn't turn out, you'll be one step closer to discovering what your spiritual gift is. But you've got to take risks. That's the whole idea behind the parable of the talents. One given five has to risk in order to make ten. One given two has to risk in order to make four. And the one who didn't risk did nothing. And that's the last thing. Remember that serving Christ in his church with your talents is not optional. Every Christian is called to belong, and every Christian is called to serve. It's a mandatory sign of saving faith. We see that in the parable of the talents. Once again, the one that had one took his talent and buried it. And he assumed that he knew his God, but he didn't. And you'll notice the judgment there. Take this worthless, lazy slave and throw him out. You say, John, that's too harsh for not serving. I'm not the editor. I'm the errand boy. Okay? I'm just the errand boy. I'll tell you this. God takes service to his body seriously. And we need to engage ourselves and realize there'll be great joy if I take my talents, my gifts, my abilities, and I invest them in Christ's church for his kingdom's sake. He will bless me. He will honor that kind of investment. But if I don't do that, then I need to ask questions. Where my heart is? Where is my heart? With reference to my Savior and service, owning the ministry of Christ and serving in his kingdom. Look for the needs. Be willing to take risks. And remember that saving faith always has deeds. And deeds can be best translated in Christ's church with your service. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we know that we can't engage in any of this until we have a relationship with you. And you have provided for that by faith in your Son, Jesus Christ, and his finished work on the cross. And Father, I pray now that you would penetrate all of our hearts, that, Lord, no one would be left behind here. We can all do something regardless of age, Regardless of our circumstances, we can serve you. And so, Lord, bless us to that end. And give us grace to know you first and to pour out our lives in investing in your kingdom subsequently. And we'll give you the praise and glory for all that you will do. We make our prayer in Jesus' name.